This week I'm joined by Dale Brunswald, who is an independent Rudolf Steiner researcher and founder and host of RudolfSteinerAudio.com. In this first episode on the work of Rudolf Steiner, we discuss Steiner's relationship to theosophy, the philosophy of freedom, elements of Steiner's biography, spiritual growth, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Mythic's podcast, gain access to some exclusive content, and just keep the podcast running indefinitely, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. Dale Brunsvold, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Pleasure. So we are going to be taking on the seemingly gargantuan task of tackling an overview of the work of Rudolf Steiner, who, though, you know, I guess now in retrospect, people would say founder of anthrop- uh, anthroposophy, but you could also say a philosopher to a certain degree early on, a theosophist, uh, a spiritualist, a mystic. There's a lot of artists as well, architects as well. There's a lot. Uh, and as, I was, as, as we were just talking about before we started recording here, you know, 480 volumes over his life, which I think is still being processed and sort of um, catalogued, so to speak. So this is, you know, to, 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 to go, right, we're just going to do a chat about this, this guy's whole work is a big task, but uh, we'll, we'll give it a go. So before we jump in with all of this, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your work and how you, um, perhaps when you first came across Rudolf Steiner and whether or not it was, uh, you know, philosophical love at first sight. Yes, thank you, James. Uh, so let's say, first of all, that I think at the moment there are about 360 volumes oh, okay. still that have been published in the German, of which only about 200 have been translated into English. Okay. But there are, I think, immediately another 40 that are still kind of in, in the works, but who knows how many decades it'll be before they come out. And I think you're right. I think there's more. I think it probably if they got all of his notes and his letters and all that stuff uh, eventually published, who knows how many volumes the whole thing would be? Because in those days, of course, they wrote letters a lot, right? Mm. So mm. there's that side of it. So, so yeah. So in 1978, I guess it was, I was living in uh, going to college in Moorhead, Minnesota. And uh, I was in a graduate course in Ludwig Wittgenstein, who I still don't understand. <laughs> and uh, there was a guy at the table asking these unusual questions about percepts and concepts. And I just thought his questions were so unusual. And I asked him uh, what he was studying, because I hadn't heard anybody use the terminology quite like that. Not that I was that versed in philosophy, really, but, but I, uh, I, you know, I, I love it till the, to this day. And he uh, he slid the book, The Philosophy of Freedom, across the table. I'll never forget it. I still have that text he gave me, the white small paperback uh, translated by Michael Wilson with the red lettering. And uh, I got to tell you, James, I don't know what it was. It was one of those moments in your life where I saw his name, Rudolf Steiner, and it was kind of comical sounding to me. Mm-hmm. Rudolph has always been kind of, you know, Rudolph, I suppose the red-nosed reindeer has always been kind of on my mind. But for some reason, I, uh, my heart leapt for joy. I hadn't read a book. I was just looking at the cover of a book. And I was so intrigued by why am I, why am I so excited about this, you know? And uh, I dived into that and I dived into his other books. And uh, it, was, it was love at first sight in the, in the sense of philosophically, theologically, Christologically. Uh, in so many ways, I felt, uh, as I've said to other people before, it was like somebody was giving me back the other half of the world mm, that's without good. dogma, 
without any kind of you, this is what you have to believe because it's true, but I'm a spiritual researcher. I have done, I have achieved a, a level of cognition that allows me to be fairly certain that what I'm providing as information is as accurate as a humanly possible for me. He was very straightforward about that. And here, take or, take it or leave it. And so that kind of freedom that he leaves, you especially imagine in the spiritual world or the, or the religious world where we're almost, uh, it's almost implied that we're going to believe, right? Mm-hmm. And he's, he's like, no, I, I, don't, I don't have any relationship to that. This is what I found out. What do you think? Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what I lived with. So about 79, I started to uh, record the books um, on the cassette so I could listen to them in the car. And when I was walking, you know, they had Walkmans, if you remember those in the old days. And uh, and then I had those. And then I would get books like from the Rudolf Steiner Lending Library, but which is in America. And I still get those on a regular basis. And uh and so I recorded uh, mainly the Christological lectures because I just I think he's one of the great preachers of all time. And uh, so anyway, uh, then, you know, it, then it was the question of the world catching up with that in the in terms of the Internet occurring uh, and then MP3s occurring. And then, you know, after Napster, all these other things, if you even know anyone, what any of this <laughs> is. Right. And then I saw one day it just kind of came you know, in front of me, I'm like, oh, wait a sec, I could put Steiner on the web. So I wrote to uh, uh, what a place called SteinerBooks.org in America, which, by the way, I, I would like people to know without SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, we would have none of this. I can't mm-hmm. translate German. So if they're ever thinking about, you know, money, throwing money somewhere, those guys can always use it because they're not, you know, they're not nonprofit kind of organizations. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so. Uh, I asked permission and a man named Gene Golligly, who has passed away in the last two years, gave me permission a couple months later in February of 2005. And so I really started re-recording everything by and large at that time. Mm-hmm. And so since 2005, it's the 18th year. I started the 18th year in February. And uh, it's just been a joy, a blessing. It took maybe 10 years for it to really catch on. And then after that, it's done real well. It's gotten a lot uh, a lot busier and I get a lot of emails from people and I get to share the ideas of Steiner with people, which is a, a real, real singular joy in my life. So. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm intrigued. I mean, you know, that, that, that moment for anyone is, is such a joy, right? To find that they're, they're one, right? That, that philosopher or that thinker who they go, yeah, you know, as you say, you found your other, your other half, so to speak. But I mean, I'm intrigued. Does anyone, has anyone else come close? Well, I've always been kind of a gardener of the mind. I love to read the ideas of thinkers. I just do. And uh, so, you know, I love Soren Kierkegaard a lot. I don't know if you've ever read much of him. Teilhard de Chardin kind of blows my mind. And when I was a kid, I did go through the books that kind of cracked open all this for me when I was 17 or 18 was Carlos Castaneda and then uh, uh, Carl Jung and then uh, 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 Gurdjieff. So those were the three that kind of gave me a real uh, reorientation here from Bismarck, North Dakota. It's a pretty conservative uh, provincial area of the world, to say the least. And uh, so those ideas were even more powerful in your head because they're so contrasting to everything around you. 
So that, you know, I really was kind of set up. And after I read Steiner, uh, except, you know, Siren is wonderful to read. Tired is G, uh, Gurdjieff. I don't find very interesting anymore, mainly. Oh, and no, you know, you're a Gurdjieff guy, are you? Mm, yeah, yeah. That, Gurdjieff, I apologize. Gurdjieff. Okay, no, no, I, I no, want to no, step on fine. anybody. No, but no. it just happens. You know, you just sort of shed stuff. You know, you only have enough time for enough things. But I was d- deeply influenced by his work, and I still really play around with it. I have all these books and, you know, that kind of thing. And I've read, you know, seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. And he is impressive. But Steiner, man, I mean, it's just the whole order of magnitude beyond that kind of, in my mind, it is, you know, because there is this thing for me. There is that, yeah, you know what really was amazing is that I would look at all these people, all the gurus and all the great uh, theosophically oriented people, let's call them. And they had beautiful words, they had beautiful phrases, they had really interesting ideas. But not really any of them really showed me the money in the sense of creating these these things in the world like Waldorf education and biodynamic agriculture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with Steiner. And that's what really cemented for me uh, a certain pragmatism that Steiner's spirituality uh, gave me. And I went, wow, you can really if you really achieve this, the world is healing. The world is better for it rather than. Dale's going to be a wonderful guy because he's going to evolve so much, mm. <laughs> which is kind of the sigh. A lot of that is, you know, there's an egotism in it. Steiner, of course, talks about it a lot. He said, we have to realize this is not for us. If we do that, it's almost a kind of black magic. Mm. Definitely. No, no, no. In, in I'd a agree. way. I'd agree. I mean, yeah. This- and interesting, though, I would have never thought it in a million years, right? So, yeah. Am I talking too much? No, not at okay. all. Not all at all. Right. It's funny that you say uh, with, with Gurdjieff, you say, I don't want to tread on anyone's toes because, I mean, that's literally what, you know, as someone who's interested in Gurdjieff, I should be ready for that, right? To, for I my, guess that's right. The corn, stepping yeah, on your corns, corns, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, all these thinkers, it brings me to uh, the Hermetics question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Uh, Steiner is already in there, and uh, you can add three more. Who do you who do you pick? I, I would pick Siren, Kierkegaard, Teilhard de Chardin, and Albert Einstein. And uh, mm. like I say, I don't really know what I would hear. You know, I don't know if you know much about Siren Kierkegaard. Have you he- ever heard of him? I've heard of, I've heard of Kierkegaard. Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's on my list. But as I understand it, Kierkegaard <clears throat> would be a little. He'd be quite sporadic. As I understand it, his morning drink was a cup of sugar with uh, black coffee poured over the top. I didn't know that. Oh, I wow. didn't know that. The, the That's good. That's good. Sludge, yeah. But he was, of course, called the fork because of his incredibly acerbic tongue and keen mind. And his writing is just strangely joyful to read, even if he's oddly conservative in the kind of religious sphere, really kind of is, and I'm not. Mm-hmm. But it, that doesn't matter. His philosophical works are astonishing. He really was the inventor of existentialism. Uh, I, people don't realize that, but he just totally was. And, uh, and his mind was just so quick and everything. So for that reason, I just like to have him in the group just to see <laughs> how the other guys would handle him in a way. How, how do you and think sh- um, Einstein would handle that room? Sorry. Yeah, well, that's the question is, that, is how much would he listen first? You know what I mean? Because, you know, he might, you know, I just curious. I mean, he was around the same time Steiner was. And I don't know if just the concentration in his own speciality was so overwhelming that he just simply didn't ever, you know, consider that other kind of thing at all. But uh, I, you know, I would really love those two guys just to sit there and just to see, you know, how, how that would all occur. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Just that's, I guess, the reason I'd want them together. The, mm-hmm. the idea that is fascinating for me is Chardin. I, have you ever read Tyard? 
I've got uh, Let Me Explain sitting on my book pile by Teilhard de Chardin. So, ah, okay. Yeah, it's there ready, but I haven't... Uh, people, he keeps coming. I, he keeps coming across my path, which I generally should take as a go read him. <laughs> well, I got to share one thing with you. I think we'll come back to it later. But he had this very interesting picture of the Christ, which in our time is so hard to find because generally he's that simple man of Nazareth, or you know, let's all be like Jesus. You know, all these kind of uh, reductive aspects, rather than well, what about the grand cosmic spiritual being? Huh? What are you talking about? You know, that's crazy. You know, and I'm like, well, then why do you pay any attention to the guy at all? You know, Buddha's far more interesting, <laughs> you know, but uh, but the point with him was that he, he he had this right. If you know about him, he was a, a Jesuit priest exiled to China for 30 years because his ideas were just too uh, abrasive to the church. It just really bothered the church. But he was a foremost paleontologist in the world, maybe one of the five greatest of his time. And so here he is. He's in China. He's studying the uh, paleontology, the land, the strata of the earth. And he, he finds this observation from his concrete scientific investigation that, wow, you know, he finds a certain kind of plant at a certain layer of the earth. And he looks a million years later <laughs> in that layer of the earth that he finds that one plant has become a hundred or a thousand different uh, uh, plants, different kinds of plants, phyla and all that, whatever the right terms are. Then he looks another million years and each one of those has uh, tangentially differentiated to another thousand different ones. And so he watches this, what he called tangential differentiation of evolution like the branches of a tree growing right and it just he's it just shocked him how powerful it was for for many many millions of years and then he comes to a, a layer a strata of the earth and from then on he can't really find any of it anymore all this tangential differentiation stops dead in its tracks by and large there's still vestiges of it but compared to how it was in the past you, there's nothing really. And it, this is in the latter tertiary period. And it is there for the first time in evolution that we find the remains of the human form. And he goes, and then my little paraphrase is, Steyard says, excuse me, <clears throat> it's as though evolution in its intelligence had finally arrived at what it had desired all along. Wow. And instead of spending its passion in the differentiation of new forms, it took all its forces and began to radially converge them in the human form so that from then on, we are evolution. Wow. That's, uh... And it's, it's very compelling mm -hmm. from a, you know, a, a grounded you know, observational point of view, but then a priest having this kind of more expansive and imaginative intelligence to take hold of the phenomena, right, that he's seeing in a very exact way, and then kind of synthesizing this wondrous picture for us. Go ahead, Gavin. Too no, much. no, no, I wasn't going to say anything. I was just going to say, wow. <laughs> um, because that's, that's, a, that's a compatibility I probably need to look into, is that compatibility between the you know the evolution of man the spiritual evolution you know the ladder and you know the evolution of the cosmos and there's plenty of people who tried to tie them together and that's a 
that's a you know a scientific way of doing that. It's it's very it is yeah. Wow. So he goes from cosmogenesis mm-hmm. until the appearance of humanity, which is anthropogenesis, and then he says this radial convergence then creates a new space, this psychic space, this psychological space that arises in the human form, and then it evolves. And that it gets to a place, he says, where objectively then this being called the Christ seeds it with a new force that takes it further in evolution. And he claims in a certain way that this happens all over the cosmos, that all over the cosmos, this this thing happens. And then the Christ enters in and, 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 and seeds it to its next step in evolution. Isn't that wild? For, I mean, you can imagine why they kept him in China for 30 years. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I wonder if he'd even. I wonder if he'd even get away with it now. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. No, I, I imagine. Yeah. Wow. So, mm-hmm. but it does tie in when we get a chance. I think it ties in interestingly from my readings over the years to Steiner's work on the philosophy of freedom, where he's talking about epistemology, how the human being comes to know, and whether or not there really is freedom, and what is the nature of freedom. Not that I have a complete grasp of those things, but they actually tie in in an astonishing way, I think, with uh, with Chardin's ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a lot of, you know, we have some figures there, which I, as you say, I imagine we, we will tie them back in. But as we as we jump in, there is this question, you know, that's really difficult with Steiner in a way. I mean, situating him historically, yeah, that's a little bit easier. But situating him philosophically and spiritually, you know, my favorite my favorite sort of Steiner anecdote is the fact that, you know, when he's in school, he's so bored by the, the schoolwork. He literally has a copy of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason hidden in the schoolwork book so he can read it. But But after that, as he moves into philosophy of freedom, as I understand it, Really, he's a, he's an autodidact almost immediately. Yes, I think that that's true in the philosophical sense, right? He he got his uh, he went to the MIT of Vienna, mm-hmm. right, and got his uh, probably would think of it as a master's in analytical mechanics. Even though in those days, of course, this would be around uh, eighteen ninety. Uh, I think the curriculum was very expansive and very intense. You know, Mm -hmm. you can imagine no television, no radio, you know, people really learned a lot. So he did, he did learn that, shall we say more conventionally, the the scientific side of everything. But then because of his uh, poverty and his need to want to help his parents in helping him go to school, he then, so the argument says, and I don't know how uh, uh, anecdotal this is really, right, that he really taught himself Greek and Latin and studied the philosophical work anyway, right? He'd been doing that since, as you say, I think he was 11 or 12 when he started reading Kant. <laughs> uh, so so he uh, he was doing that as well. And then he was tutoring the, the, his students at the gymnasium, at, mm-hmm. the, at, the, at the liberal uh, college, you might say, at the same time that he was doing these other things. So that that is the autodidactic aspect of him. I think I agree with you on that. Even though then, when he got his PhD from Rostock, it was a PhD in philosophy. Mm-hmm. So he got a conventional one in that too, you might say. Mm-hmm. And why did but you know, it was a lot, lot looser, loosey-goosier in those days. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And as you say, I mean, I'm, I think we're all sort of jealous of it now. Those, those older forms of education where, yeah, it would have been rigorous. But as you say, you would have learned so much, you know. It would have been intense. (laughs) And there is an argument, too, that when we're talking, let's say, from 1890 to 1910 in Vienna and that part of the world, first of all, they had the greatest uh, opera house in the world. Mahler was the uh, conductor and uh, director of that. And it was considered probably the 
the highest point in, in, in opera music in, mm. in, in the history of the world, really, up mm. to now. I don't know now, right, so much. Mm. But then all everything that was happening, you had Clint. Klimt and you had the art, the secessionists, you had the philosophical work of all the great ones just kind of creaming to the top there. Yeah, at, at, and then it was kind of all blown to smithereens in 1914, yeah. you know, the, the fin de siècle, however you say it properly, right? That end of an age that was so ripe with, a, and Steiner, right, was formed, was culturally enriched and structured by the, possibly one of the richest cultural moments since Greece, I would argue. Okay, and that's interesting. And I think that's valuable when we think about other seekers and other seers. How much was their grounded education there so that as they took in these spiritual experiences, they could really incorporate them, form them and then communicate them in a very clear, distinct way. And I think most of these other people lack this. I think Steiner was preeminent in, in his concrete cultural development as a human being but that's arguable yeah i think it's is it robert musel's man without qualities oh, is, i'm reading know, that book yeah, i can't believe you know, it i love the uh the, you know, haunting the, to me the, the text to document that sort of absolute um spiritual and intelligence explosion in vienna over that 20 years and i think it's in uh hans herman hopper's book on democracy but he 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 does that he has this almost half a page footnote listing Every single, um, you know, you know, economics, music, philosophy, spirituality, like everything. You you look back at that era in Vienna and you think, what was go what was going on? Yeah. You know, seriously, yeah. where did this where did this come from? Yeah, and you know, their language even structurally is similar to Greek, which is so fascinating in so many ways. You know, the 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 way the articles and stuff. Do you know German? I'm not a really good at it, but I have a little bit of. No, I, do, I don't. I'm. Yeah. Uh, Language but there's an echo. There's an echo of it there. And I always think of Greece, you know, as that incredible flowering and, and seeing this. Thing. Yeah, isn't that? And you're reading Musil. I just absolutely can't believe that. You've blown my mind. I <laughs> isn't that cool? Mm, well, I'm a big fan of uh, maximalist novels. So, you know, uh -huh. uh, so there. Um, but, but I mean, so philosophically, it's a bit more straightforward. But spiritually, it's probably the more important factor, I guess. What is, what is, what is Steiner's sort of spiritual foundations? Well, let's let's finish the other one, though, because I think my opinion is that Steiner really was the end of German idealism, that he came right at that German idealism point. They were struggling with these fundamental questions. You know what? They gave up. <laughs> they just set them aside right when he wrote the philosophy of freedom, which I think answers really a lot of those questions in a way that is challenging, no doubt. But he did. And they went, oh, we're not interested in that anymore. We're in an existentialism or Heidegger <laughs> or Husserl and, and all these other people were around. Right. And so less Heidegger, but these other people. So I just wanted to mention that, that he mm -hmm. I think he was still right in that stream and had finished it off. <laughs> he I mean, showed Kant's shortcomings and everything in a beautiful way and, and all that stuff. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that I'm sort of uh, with, with German idealism. After Kant, it's like, okay, there's a lot of people doing really interesting stuff, right? Schopenhauer's doing interesting stuff. I'm yeah. not a big fan of Hegel. Uh, obviously, Steiner, his foundation, as I understand it, is more Fichte. Um, yes. But... As, as far as I'm concerned, and this is a big thing to say, it's like this is all a, just a continuation of Kant and nothing fundamental breaks. It's like, oh, you've done some really cool stuff, but we're still pretty much Kantian. Maybe you disagree. Even, 
Even Steiner, you would say that. Oh, not Steiner, not Steiner. I'm saying, I'm oh, okay, saying gotcha. you know, German idealism onwards. It's like, okay, you can call it German idealism, but you, you, none of you have really, you, you've all kept trying to say, we're trying to get beyond Kant, but none of them succeed. You know, I think that's true. I think that is. And that's because of the presuppositions they were able to conjure up and they just never were sufficient. And that's really where Steiner begins and really wrestles with where can we begin this? Where is a presupposition? a set of presuppositions that will allow this to to really go forward. And that's, I think, where he broke through, except that it's a challenging, you know, it's a challenging thing. But Hegel, Hegel was the guy, right, who just fought against Kant right away, right? Hmm. So, uh, but like you say, was he successful is a question. Well, everyone's still just talking about the same thing. So I, I imagine. That's right. So why do, why, do you, right. why do you think um, philosophy of freedom didn't really stick? Do you, do, do you think... What was Steiner already seen as someone who wasn't exactly, uh, you know, uh, strictly philosophical at that point? Someone to be a bit, you know, uh, held at arm's length. I don't think they knew that yet. So this was uh, <laughs> 1896, right? I believe maybe it was 1886. I don't remember the year the book was published. But Steiner didn't uh, come out of the closet, as it were, <laughs> until September 28th, 1900, when he gave a lecture on Goethe's secret revelation at uh, the Brockdorf's. Uh, little theosophical group that they had at the time. And that's when he heard, he realized as he spoke that he saw people there that were going to listen to what he had to say and were just going to dismiss him outright. Mm. And so that, that was really the, and then they asked him to come back, et cetera, et cetera. And so that all began. But before that he was, uh, you know, he was a man of letters. He ran in newspaper, not newspapers, but literature magazines. He was the editors of that. He was a man about town in terms of going to the theater and all that kind of stuff. So I think he was pretty, pretty respected yeah i think he was and so that book and that book is not except for james the whole idea of what is that presupposition so he said should we talk about this now or, or should we talk no, about no, a spirituality no no no, no, no. okay so and i'm going to do my best on this so if people are upset you know with me i'm always ready to be uh, uh, put in my place uh but he he said uh what everybody wants to say okay let's begin with I and the world. Let's begin with the self and the not self. Let's begin with those two things in whatever form we talk about them, right? That's how we begin a philosophical investigation. Mm -hmm. Fair enough? Yeah. So he says, you know, that really all those presuppose something that nobody is taking seriously. And that something is thinking. That thinking has come into the picture somehow, some way, and it has separated the, the individuality of the person from the world. And he even says, there's a line in his work, he says, the human eye, the human ego, lives by the grace of thinking. Huh. Now, this place is thinking in a place I don't think any other philosopher has ever done. Not even Descartes? And I, it may be. Okay, and I don't know enough about Descartes, so... Do you want to expand on that? Well, I was just, you know, I think a lot of people might be thinking of the I think, therefore I am, uh, you know, the famous quotation. But I mean, okay, it, okay. It, yeah, in what sense, maybe it does it differ or in what sense? So how, how would it differ? So this is my picture of that. And this is where we go back a little bit to that Chardin uh, picture from before. And that is from Steiner's spiritual experience, he looks out at the world and he sees all these formative forces okay, in the cosmos, in the earth, these formative forces kind of penetrating matter. Now, believe it or not, I'm going to get back to what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of important. Uh, that these formative forces, they penetrate matter, and they, it, they create all these forms, the forms of trees and, and, and uh, 
animals and plants and, and all this stuff around us that's so amazing. Right. And you could argue that when the, these formative forces take hold of a plant, they really spend all of their passion in, in bringing that form to birth and bringing about, you know, the blossom and the seed and the fruit and everything as it goes along. OK, here we go. But in a human being, for some reason, we are kind of a hologramic or holographic resonance of the whole cosmos. Mm -hmm. We're like the easiest thing for the cosmos to create. <laughs> huh. the, easiest okay? thing. the easiest thing. We're the, we're the most uh, uh, preternatural form. We're the beginning. We're the first form of the cosmos, but in a metamorphosic way. So the whole cosmos has sort of birthed a microcosmic picture of itself uh, in the human being. But again, we can't, you know, the, how to say that because the metamorphoses are so deep for our linear sequential minds. It's you know, just take, go with me on it. Okay. So then here's the point when these formative forces dive into matter and bring about the human form, when they're finished, they're, they haven't spent all their passion. They have super abundance of forces left over. And those forces think of the caduceus picture of the two snakes that are crisscrossing the staff. And then at the top, they meet each other. Mm. This is my picture. Now, this is not Steiner, okay? That what happens in us is these formative forces and only in us, these formative forces are able to turn upon themselves and the formative forces attempt to formatively form the formative forces themselves. <laughs> and when they do that, the spiritual world is able to enter onto the physical plane and the human eye wakes up on the physical plane and is aware of the universe. Okay. And and therefore, and what we see outside of us as these formative forces appear in us and they are still formative forces, but we call them thinking. Well, wow. so so the thinking that's happening in us is a, 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 a raised right a, a raised to a higher level of these formative forces. And that's what our thinking is doing all the time. Right. I'm forming forms and thoughts and shapes and connecting things. I'm like, a you know, a living, you know, being inside But I wake up and I start going out into the world. OK, so so this is where I think this is, you know, from years of studying Steiner that I think mm. Steiner was trying to show that it's that thinking out there <laughs> called formative forces that arises in, in us and creates this I in the world. Mm. Is, all, is, is all thinking like that or is it sort of a special form of thinking for Steiner? I think that it's refined. I think, yes, absolutely. It's a, it, well, then we get to this delicious picture, right? The delicious, one of Steiner's fundamental ideas that we need to touch on, of course, and that is this whole notion that, okay, well, we look out there with these formative forces in the world. Yes, we see them evolve the world, right? We have tons of evidence of the evolution of the world. But then you say, yeah, and the human consciousness, it evolves too. People go, huh? What are you talking about? Consciousness has been the same now as it was 100,000 years ago. It's just that we're smarter now. And Steiner goes, oh, no, no. Consciousness has been doing this magnificent, gigantic evolution as well. And if you look at every culture, you'll see them in a certain modality of consciousness in their time manifesting a culture. Uh, yeah, okay. And all of a sudden, James, the whole past of history changed for me. Now I don't have any critique 
so to speak at all. It humbles you. You go, what was the kind of consciousness that the Egyptians had? that they would relate to their social world the way they did. Well, they were just oppressed by a pharaoh in a political blah, blah, blah. And he goes, no, no, no. They were united with each other in a way you and I can't imagine. The sense of self, for instance, was very dim. But the sense of community, the sense of tribalism, whatever the word is, was fundamentally existential in their consciousness all the time. And they lived in kind of a, you know, quite a wonderful world in that way, even though to us, they look like they were suffering like crazy, let's say, right? So everything has to be readjusted and rethought out if Steiner's argument that an evolution of consciousness is fundamental to an understanding of history and fundamental to an understanding of the world and the human being. And I have embraced that, even though I don't know it's true. Okay, okay. A big question I would have is, you know, this, okay, so the, 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 the consciousness in terms of this, this idea of a consciousness of a time of a place of a culture. And if, if you look back, I mean, even if you look at something like the, 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 the chronology of the Bible, you know, it, it's sort of seen there in that in the, the consciousness begins with, as you say, nations or peoples, not even nations, but peoples, which then I, I guess as it evolves, it moves into nations and then nation states and maybe smaller and smaller until eventually you know, is the modern conscious one of of the individual ego? What did Steiner ever say what the modern consciousness is? Sure. I mean, that's kind of all he's talking about all the time. (laughs) Right. And that is what is happening in consciousness. So, yeah, that's that I have to rethink that through a little bit. Let's let that gestate for a while. And and let's go back to your question about what what is Steiner's spiritual uh, lineage? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So spiritually, what do we say about Steiner? Um, It's tricky. So first of all, he had all the cultural greats. He studied Plato, Aristotle, Zarathustra, Goethe, Kant, Nietzsche, Giordano Bruno, all the mathematicians, all the scientists. All this had a, has a spiritual aspect to it, even though we may not think that it does, right? The artists, the musicians, all that stuff. But uh, I don't, you know, and, and again, we're presuming a lot here, but eventually he met a, a herb gatherer on a train named Felix Kogutsky. And Felix Kogutsky apparently was some kind of a uh, uh, spiritual master. I'm going to say that. Nobody has any proof of this. But Steiner was intrigued by what he talked about and how he talked about nature and plants and the kind of spiritual aspect of our of our existence. And I, I, I think that he became a student of his in an esoteric sense. Right. And eventually then uh, came in contact with, shall we say, the masters that uh, either were alive or not alive, that uh, his uh, form of consciousness as it evolved uh, was able to access. And then, and I know I'm rushing this, so we may have to go back and unpack this more carefully. Mm -hmm. As the argument is, is that we have, you know, okay, let's take a mystery in the human being, memory. Where, what the heck is going on with that? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I can remember something from yesterday. Well, that's gone. No, it's not exactly <laughs> because I have a memory. I can kind of experience the past in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera. And so but yet I go back if I've got an amazing memory. And actually, personally, I don't. But you go back in your memory and they say usually there's a place where you'll find you had your first memory. And before that, you have absolutely no memories. Right. So there's this thing called memory that a human being can have more or less access and experience of. Now, Steiner then says, well, 
you know, when you really advance uh, in your ex experience of consciousness in these deeper ways, you'll actually come to a realization that's quite astonishing. And that is that the earth is a living being and it has a kind of memory. And this memory that it has is intimately connected to the activity of human beings, that we're deeply, deeply the earth and the earth is deeply, deeply us. Okay, and that's, you know, don't want to get too flaky about it because he's very concrete. But he says, and you can actually, at a certain point in your initiation as a, an initiate, you can access a memory life that the earth has. Mm -hmm. And you learn in that. You can commune with people that have died. You can commune with, uh, you know, scientists and musicians. You can go into the, the, the milieu of Roman culture and experience it from the inside of human souls. And, and this is, I think, where the evolution of consciousness sort of sprang into him because he could do this, et cetera, et cetera. So this becomes, to me, the most fundamental aspect of his spiritual heritage. Is he is and again it's autodidactic <laughs> in its own interesting way, right? He just could absorb the the wisdom of this and then take it in the modern era through his wonderful cultural foundation of growing up, you know, in, in Vienna and those areas, and then begin to speak about what the world is now in relation to history. Of course, if we don't have history, what you know, what are we going to say about the present? Nothing very profound, right? We need the past to be really understood for the present to be properly understood, I think. Did I, does that, is that too bizarre? No, no, but I okay. mean, I, okay. I, I, I guess one question is, are you, is this, when you, when you come to talk about these things, which Steiner, do you, for you, is it a matter of belief is it a matter of uh proven fact of rationality when you read these 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 almost to me and the way you're explaining them aren't coming across as arguments he's uh he's trying to articulate something just experiential experiential you meant yeah, yeah. sorry yeah yes yes that's what he is doing but but that's what he's saying now what do i think well I'm not really a believer in anything. I don't know why I would ever want to do that since it sounds to me like you're just giving up, <laughs> mm. and, you know? So to me, everything I, 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 I work with are ideas and they're, and they're working hypotheses. And if, if, so you read Steiner for a while and then you realize, wait, this picture really holds together. So it has a certain persuasiveness to it where you're like amazed by it. So maybe I'm just in thrall, <laughs> right? But to say, do you know this? Do you believe this? I certainly do not. I don't even know what that actually means. I don't actually know what that word belief means. I hope I don't believe in anything, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, I'm sure he's like, do you believe in the good? Well, that's like saying, do you believe in oxygen? Right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. Of course, the good, you want that to be in the world. Do you believe in it? It's, it's kind of a, a misuse of the word. So I would, I would be very careful about how I would use the word. And if people could come up with a proper uh, definition I could live with, I could maybe say I do have those kinds of things. But generally, I'm, I'm a gardener of the mind. I'm, 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 I'm enthralled by the ideas of so many people. And Steiner just stands above them all um, by heads, heads and you know, by many, many orders of magnitude. So sounds, but I don't know if he's sounds, right. <laughs> I wouldn't understand. I wouldn't understand Einstein. If I can read him. Do I believe him? Well, I, I don't even really comprehend what he's saying. I don't I don't have the mathematical depth to mm -hmm. kind of, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, so, so many things we think are obviously true, right? Mm -hmm. That we're probably only believing anyway, right? Yeah, okay. 
Okay. okay. So it's almost like uh, you're, you're, <laughs> it seems you're still a, a believer in Gajifian hypnotism then, right? You know, that Gajifian idea of like, well, do you actually, do you actually know this? You know, or, or are you just telling yourself you know it because that makes everything, <laughs> that makes the whole structure of reality so much, so much more simple and so much easier to take if you just say, look, I agree with this. I believe in that, etc." Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe, uh, you know, what is it? I mean, all, all the world. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That was an interesting way to put it. I'll think about it. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, just off that question of belief, I mean, very simple one for Steiner. Did he believe in anything? Well, th there, there you go. See, so what happens when, you know, again, we're, we're going back into an assumption of Steiner's uh, state of mind and Steiner's modality of consciousness. What happens when, if you have a question, you can really enter into a spiritual condition where you can come to some kind of direct knowing in relation to the Christ, in relation to the spiritual world, in relation to the hierarchies of spiritual beings working into matter, etc. cetera, it's, it, it, you know, it, into all these things. What, what does belief become? Mm -hmm. To you and me, belief is essentially a relationship to something we wish we knew, but we just don't know it yet, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he had that condition. <laughs> mm. I'm not sure, you know? So that's what's kind of wonderful about it. it. You know, it frees you and me up when we're reading him to go, oh, that could be true because he's not kind of desperate about it being believed like, like a lot of believers are when they want to share their ideas with you. Yeah. I hope I'm not sounding that way to people. No, no, no. <laughs> No, no, no. Don't no, mean to. We're just all. talking about an amazing dude, right? That's all. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, uh, still staying on that line, I guess, of, of okay, but moving away from belief, because I think, yeah, there is a complete understanding there of, you know, I, I, I do understand what you mean by that, that, especially in relation to your own thing of just dealing with ideas, saying, you know what, let's just dive into this idea and let's just see. Let's just embroil ourselves within it and see what happens and uh, and read and, and study. But um, nice. of course, we... We, we can't really avoid the, the, the theosophy angle. And, and theosophy is something I've wanted to cover on the podcast and read about for a long time because theosophy is one of these, um, almost like a historical anomaly, now, not an anomaly, a, a historical event now, which at, in its time was gigantic, as, as, I, as I understand it from what I've read. It was huge. It was everywhere. And as soon as it arrives, it arrives in this big, quite, you know, becomes this big thing, it's just gone now. It seems to just have disappeared from the map. And so, and also it's interesting that these big figures, Uspensky is another one who get into theosophy. They get quite deeply into it. They get quite high up. Uh, and sometimes they almost, uh, as I understand it, get initiated into those inner circles, etc. They, at this point, the bigger figures, Steiner, Uspensky, they leave. And so, you know, there's a lot going on here. What, 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 what for Steiner was theosophy in his life? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. So, yeah, so, you know, maybe we should give people a little picture of it. Uh, so the idea is that uh, theosophy came into existence, the Theosophical Society in, in uh, 1875 in New York City. Hmm. So that's where it was founded by Blavatsky, I believe, in Alcott. Maybe it was uh, Ledbetter. I'm not sure of those three people, what, who did what, in a way. And, you know, she poured forth in Isis Unveiled and also later in The Secret Doctrine this astonishing uh, esoteric picture of human history, which is really quite something, right? Uh, if you ever get a chance to read a biography of her uh, on her, you know, it's, she was an amazing person, very charismatic. Uh, so, so what happens then is, you know, that grows, as you said, especially like in uh, England, it was very, a very big deal as well. And in Germany, let's say, but 
So then uh, in 1900, when Steiner gave his, uh, his talk to a theosophical group, he was not in the Theosophical Society at that time. Then, then over time, within a couple of years, they asked him to become the secretary hmm. of the Theosophical Society of Germany. And Steiner said, uh, I will do this, but I will only share my own spiritual research. Mm -hmm. So, but at the same time, because he was talking to people that were theosophically, you know, that studied uh, Blavatsky's work, he needed to use her terminology. And he needed to use a lot of conceptual formations that she used, but almost immediately he began to try to pull those into a different direction. Mm -hmm. Okay, but they were the people that heard him. They were the people that simply were there that were open-minded enough to consider this kind of research done by somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, he was, and, and the minute he did that, he was just forsaken by, by the whole entire culture that he'd been in all those other years before, which is really quite a step to take when you think about how accomplished he was becoming in that, in the, in that world. So, so Steiner then, uh, actually, the day that he gave his inaugural talk as the secretary, that night he gave a talk on a thing called anthroposophy to a different group of people. So he was already, um, you know what I mean? He, I, you know, and he didn't like Sinnott's work, like uh, esoteric Buddhism and stuff. He felt it was very much kind of a spiritual materialism that they were talking about these higher bodies we have is only like thinner physical bodies. They really didn't have an, a, a direct experience of the spiritual that could begin to show these different worlds, the world of the etheric, the, the life forces that we have our physical. Do we need to talk about those with people looking at what a human being is from, from an anthroposophical point of view? Um, hmm. Is that too, is that too tedious? I don't, I don't think it's too tedious, but I mean, it's interesting across, you know, multiple, you know, you look at any of these, the, the fourth way, anthroposophy and theosophy, there is, there is always this uh, hierarchy or structure of the human body, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, just taking into account more than the physical body and our ego, shall we say, mm -hmm. those are the mm -hmm. two kind of bodies that generally speaking, the world sees, as it were. Mm -hmm. But, but no, I don't think, it, I don't think it'd be too tedious to go into no. And, and so what I like about them is, so anyway, we were, we were talking, so let, let's finish that thought. So then um, on the other side, Steiner really, I think, was uh, incredibly charismatic and, and, and really shocked people at the way that he could clearly bring forth these ideas. And so the, the society in Germany grew really, really fast and was um, getting quite large. Meanwhile, the Theosophical Society got more and more interested in the East. Mm -hmm. Okay, at, at first, Blavatsky was very much, Steiner says the first work was very Rosicrucian, was very much out of a, shall we say, Western occultism, Western esoteric tradition, okay? But then through a Besant, who became the, 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 the leader later on in England, right? They moved more and more to uh, Eastern uh, occultists, Eastern gurus and that type of thing, and eventually moved their entire organization over to Adyar, as you probably know, right, in, in, in India. And uh, and this was, you know, something fine. You know, there was nothing out and out, you know, shall we say, you know, wrong. I don't even know what, that, what word to say. But then I think, and I don't know, I don't, you know, this is me kind of doing a, a gossip here. So I apologize to everybody trying to figure this out. So Steiner really, by 1911, 1910, 1911, had talked a lot about the nature of the Christ. 
And it's astonishing to read. If you ever want to read something to, you know, get on a, a, a roller coaster, that is just so, and yet it's all biblically based later. He, he didn't read the Bible first. He read it afterward and shows how his spiritual investigations fit in, which is in itself kind of amazing to, to read, right? Sort of like somebody inventing geometry themselves and then finding Euclid and go, oh, look at that. I, I know that because I, you know, found that out myself kind of thing. So then uh, Basant, uh, uh, they find Alcyon. They find this guy, Krishnamurti. Mm-hmm. And they go, Krishnamurti is the reincarnation of Christ. You know this story? Uh, I, the main thing, I, I've read a little bit of Krishnamurti. Okay. The main thing I understand from this story is that his passing away really just disturbed, or not, not disturbed, but it destabilized everything because he didn't leave anything. I see. So the point being is that this was, you know, really, really the opposite of what Steiner talked about. And he felt even dangerous and and, and nuts, okay, that they were doing this. But I think, you know, in a way that they saw Steiner's influence growing at such an exponential rate that they were just trying to (laughs) rock the boat. I don't know. I know that sounds trivial and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, a group around Steiner then wrote a letter to Passat because of the outrageousness of claiming that Krishnamurti was uh, the reincarnation of Christ. And, and it was really, I think, such a brusque letter that she then expelled Steiner and that whole branch of, this, of them from the Theosophical Society. They were expelled. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took, you know, sadly, it took Krishnamurti you know, a long time to finally, you know, admit, uh, I'm not, I'm not, the Christ reincarnated. Sorry, you know. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing to me is a farce, frankly. No offense, you know. And I read Krishnamurti as a kid, but again, beautiful phrases, beautiful sentences by somebody. But show me the money, man, you know. And, and mm-hmm. he can't. He can't either, you know. But he, you know, the gurus are, you know, about something else. I think than what Steiner was about in that sense. So that's when then Steiner uh, officially inaugurated. I think it was in 1912 or maybe it's 1913, January, somewhere in there, inaugurated the Anthroposophical Society and uh, many of the groups that have been theosophical in, in the Netherlands and in Germany and in many places in Europe then uh, moved over to his way of seeing things. So that's theosophy then. Now, theosophy, again, you're, uh, I think that maybe with Steiner, you know, to me, Blavatsky and all that stuff came along as a foundation for the real thing. James, and here I go, right? This is a sycophant talking now, right? The real thing, and that was Steiner. They were, it was all there, so Steiner could talk about what could be talked about and begin really a massive transformation of culture in the world. It's only 100 years, right? And everything he did is already worldwide, and it's just still got to dig its way deeper into uh, the understanding we have. That's my picture of it, right? And I can easily be uh, persuaded I'm wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To why I mean, just just as a little aside, why do you think it was? Do you think that same sort of um, your your theory on you know they were trying to rock the boat and they saw Steiner's popularity? Do you think that's that's maybe the primary reason that Theosophy, if if you agree with me on this, that Theosophy did die out as it did? Yeah, well, you know that I mean, it, it seems to me that's a pretty embarrassing story to have to to saddle as a part of your history, right? So there's that, but I don't know if there really was a spiritual stream there anymore after Blavatsky. You know, it, mm-hmm. it kept going. Uh, I don't know if she really got down to business in terms of giving a set of careful exercises that people would then use 
to uh, develop their own cognition and begin this path, which I think takes more than a lifetime. Everybody's really wanting clairvoyance. And I'm, I, I think it's more about us just you know, reorienting ourselves away from a pure materialistic orientation toward the world and, and starting to comprehend uh, the nature of the etheric world and the astral world and what the ego really is and, and the hierarchies of beings and at least begin to contemplate those ideas and see if they're true. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And she didn't give any of that. She just, and then she did something amazing. I am not dismissing that at all, but she poured out all this esoteric wisdom from someplace. And it was astonishing. And it really did blow the world's mind for a while, but there were, there were things in it that were erratic and Steiner gave a lot of lectures on her uh, and where her upbringing. And again, for many reasons, one being a woman being shortchanged in that way, culturally, that her grounded cultural life left her erratic in some ways. And that appeared in her spiritual visions. So things were distorted here and there, blah, blah, blah. And Steiner goes into that a lot. Uh, but he's very respectful of her in many ways, at the same time that he's not just blindly, you know, worshiping her and that kind of thing either. But there wasn't really anybody after her. You know, so there's that. And, and you know what? That's how anthroposophy is, too. There's really been no one after Rudolf Steiner, but he established these institutions in the world that are fundamentally esoterically based. Mm -hmm. And so when people enter into being a Waldorf teacher, if they're doing it correctly, here I go being a big shot here. If they're doing it correctly, they're taking on a spiritual path. Mm -hmm. So his vocations that he developed end up becoming methods for your own spiritual development. In fact, you can't do your job unless you spiritually develop. So to be an agriculturalist, a biodynamic person, to be a medical doctor out of anthroposophical medicine, to be a Waldorf teacher out of pedagogy and stuff and studying and meditating on your students at night when you go to bed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these things are esoteric paths. So they have kind of almost as an inertia some might argue, have kept anthroposophy kind of uh, developing, in my opinion. Do you, do you think there can be, you know, the, the second person, do you think there ever can be a lineage in that sense of, you know, after someone like Steiner or Gurdjieff or Blavatsky passes away, do you think there ever can be someone who, who in any way could replace, you know, the, the, the original uh, founder? It's a really, really pregnant question, isn't it? I mean, hmm. I want to say that as time has gone on, I've realized the benefits I have from anthroposophy, from the, 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 the sloppy, pathetic way I do the exercises, okay, even that way has made an enormous difference in my life. Mm -hmm. but I can't compare it because I didn't not do it for 30 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, and so I went, you know, really, I, I think that, that it's it's a beginning and Steiner says these the work that you do will in fact the fruits how, however evanescent uh, uh, that and you can experience them they're there in your bodies and in your next incarnation they are preserved they carry over you will be evolving in these ways now whether that's true we'll come to find but it makes sense that he needed somebody needed to come along that that was that extraordinary that could plant the seeds that could start to wake people up to not becoming completely trapped in the materialism that is so powerful in the world, right? And, and, and just 
you want to kind of take over everything in us, as it were. And uh, I think I think that's successful. I think that there, people are wrestling with with uh, what to do and seeing the earth more and more as a living being, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And hopefully not from some spacey, flaky way. I'm not into that new age stuff at all. OK, this is all real concrete for me. OK. Mm. All right. So I, did I answer that question? So I think, yes, it's over lifetimes that we would look for these things mm -hmm. to happen. And I don't know how healthy it even is for somebody nowadays to come along and know everything. And then everybody follow that person. Maybe Steiner was almost one of the last ones of that. And we've grown up enough now that we've just got to take this on through whatever kind of uh, uh, vocation we, you know, we take on. I'm going to be a person that does biodynamic agriculture seriously my whole life. I'm going to be a Waldorf teacher my whole life and work at this as best I can, et cetera, et cetera. And that will, that will bear fruit. Mm. No, I, I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really great answer to it, to be fair. Um, so there's still so much to, there's still so much to, 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 to touch upon, but I mean, as, as we've, we've um, mentioned it almost as a, as a, a piece in the chronology after the, the, the theosophical stuff, as you say, as he becomes secretary, he's giving that first talk on anthrop uh, anthroposophy. Uh, what is it? Yeah, I, I don't know what it was on. <laughs> I never got, oh. you know, it was in, a, it, there's a biography by a man named Lindenberg. It's a pretty good biography, my favorite. Uh, and I can't say it's the best because there's probably so many in German. We don't even know what mm -hmm. they are, but but this was a German one translated. And uh, it, that's all he says. He gave a talk on anthroposophy that evening just to show that he never really kind of was a theosophist. He wasn't going to join. And they said, well, you have to join. He said, well, I'm not going to pay dues. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, he, you know, he was he had a love-hate relationship with it. But those were going to be the people that were going to listen to him. So he had to go there, you know, mm -hmm. is the way I see it. Mm -hmm. So, so um, what, what is and uh, what was, maybe it's changed a little, uh, anthroposophy? So for Steiner, I mean, it really, in a way, is, is uh, to me, the highest form of humanism. And that is that our science, and, you know, I can't, I'm trying to remember the scientists who've argued this, but some have, you know, we've had to sort of strip the human being out of the picture that we have of nature in the world. And it's given us a certain kind of objectivity. And we've really done this astonishing discovery of the forces and interrelationships of everything in the world. And we look out and we've got the whole science and biology and everything. But the human being is kind of not there. And, we get, and you talk about the human being, you really, we don't have a very clear picture of what the heck we are. We're mostly, right, an animal. We're just an extension of the animal kingdom. That's kind of the best we can do. And so... Steiner goes, you know, it's astonishing. We can't heal the earth. We can't find a harmonious way of living until we reincorporate the human being, fundamentally understanding the world with the human being in it. And that's my picture of humanism, right? And so he then said that, uh, what is anthroposophy? Anthroposophy is through discovering the spirituality in the human being, then from that discovering the the spirituality of the cosmos mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so through us we will re-understand the cosmos in a new way just like kind of the way we were talking about thinking right uh, arising in us and all that when i mentioned that earlier that's kind of seeing the human being back in the picture in a, in a, in a way right where mm -hmm. we aren't in the picture very much now that's a poor 
and it's not much of a definition actually, but, but uh, I, I don't have it quite exactly as I want to say it, but uh, maybe it'll come back to me, but through the, through this, through the, oh, through the wisdom in the human being, discovering the wisdom in the cosmos again, maybe that's a better way of saying mm -hmm. it than, than spirituality. And in this, it's sort of there is a synthesis of many elements. I mean, science and spirituality loosely is the synthesis that is happening. Uh, you know, the combination of these two for, for something bigger. And in this sense, you know, do you feel that, that anything can get lost in the sense once they're combined, certain factors of each get lost? You know, you've spoken about this humanism. So really, there's obviously lots of parts, but you have this sort of scientific approach to it. You have the humanism, you have the spiritual development and... Do you, do you think really for those things to, or for Steiner, for those things to become what they're meant to become, uh, they they need to be combined. They can't just yes. be taken uh, solely. So actually, they're they're damaging to themselves, being being understood in their own vacuum. Absolutely. I mean, we could say we don't understand. <laughs> we have certain functional utilitarian, you know, aspects of knowledge that we have, and look at we're using them and we're just destroying the earth. <laughs> at a pretty rapid pace with these understandings we do have right so it, it's it's there isn't an understanding in an arguable sense unless we understand the human being also in relation to nature in a full complete existential sense mm -hmm. yeah i mean i don't know that's true but it really i i'm looking for an answer to what the heck we're doing to the planet man i mean this is insane you know what i mean mm -hmm. <laughs> was that was that for Steiner? Was that always a clear aim? You know, a, a discussion it, regarding the planet, like not not it was, in, it, not only in the, the like the cosmic terms, but in a very mm -hmm. uh, material uh, health of the planet. Wait. Yes, very much so. Very, very much so. Uh, not that necessarily his prescience uh, talked about you know uh, global warming or, or climate change. Let's call it that. But for instance, uh, one of the things that was very obvious is when he gave the agriculture course. We're talking about, you know, Upper Silesia, those parts of Europe where they had been farming a certain way for, for for centuries, whereas in America, right, we hadn't been doing any of that yet. So they could really, really see the deterioration of the land and the illnesses and, and, the, and the pests and stuff that were getting worse and worse with every year. So there was a real ecological um, pregnancy to Steiner then giving the agricultural course there. And at that time, talking about how do we do this? How do we uh, bring life back into something that we've been killing for a long time? Right. Mm -hmm. And and then it gave, you know, all the homeopathic ways of building compost piles and all the different ways to do companion planting and all the ways that the, the planets and the sun in relation to the planets and the constellations are, are bringing different qualitatively different forces to the earth that we have to acknowledge and understand and, and, and grow our plants in certain ways in relation to the cosmos. And all that is astonishing. Many argue that if you ever wanted to read the most esoteric thing Steiner read, read the agriculture lectures. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why? Because he's sort of still hiding his esoteric stuff within those very practical lectures. Well, I think because he has to say uh, all these things about the world that are esoteric, that just to explain how agriculture has to be done. Whereas in other things he could, you know, he didn't have to saturate it with so much esoteric content, spiritual content. Shall we, I don't know if I'm saying that right, mm. but maybe, maybe I made that sound weird, but yeah, but you know, like he's, you know, anyway. And I don't honestly. I've I've recorded them, and, and but they're very uh, they're very overwhelming. I mean, they're, they're quite something. Mm -hmm. But you know, 
the greatest wines in the world are grown biodynamically, which he would cringe, I think, at. <laughs> but and also uh, Demeter, you're you're over there. I don't know. Do you guys get Demeter products in in, uh, in uh, England? I You've seen those, so, yeah, yeah, little bits here and there. Very, very highly respected. All those plants that are used for uh, Dr. Hauschka products and for Voleda and Vala and Uriel Pharmacy and all these other pharmacies then take biodynamically grown plants and process them in the way Steiner indicated to preserve their vital etheric and life forces as much as possible. And so they're all extremely respected in the world. So, so at what point, you know, so that I'll, I'll sort of combine a couple of questions, I guess. One, one thing that always interests me with, you know, I think this is my, my Englishness coming through with, with everything I approach, which is, all right, but what's, what's your, what's your, not the point, but what's your goal? Where are we going? What's the aim? So one, that's one question, but combined with at what point does anthroposophy become the, the Waldorf form of education? Or was, is, is this all wrapped together that Steiner always understood that any, uh, spiritual system or esoteric system or system of this kind using the word system there very uh, precariously would that always have to be something that that became something which educated was that the goal and the goal in itself is just a continual goal of education wow yeah so first of all um, Waldorf education in a way doesn't have anything directly to do with anthroposophy right Mm-hmm. In, a, in a way, that's a path of knowledge that the teachers would use. And then Waldorf is then another uh, set of ideas Steiner gave as a, first of all, he was a teacher and had been a practical teacher for almost all his life, as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then incorporating this bigger picture of the human being with an etheric body and an astral body and an ego and all these things. And they're part of an educational system, too. So all that is a picture that they take on and they just they don't know it's true. Right. They take it on as a working model, as a working hypothesis, because there's something that when you see in a Walter school, it's just astonishing. It's so human. If you're wondering what human looks like when it comes back into the picture, you know, go to a good Walter school, because there's obviously a lot of them that have had to suffer with a lot of uh, vicissitudes over the time that they exist. OK, I, you know, your question was almost too complex for me. So let's just say that now. Are we kind of talking about teleology here? I think so. I think so. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, yeah. So how, how, how fast to take that? So right now you could say, Steiner would say that in this part of evolution, the human ego is actually kind of evolving. It's trying to come into being. And, and this is then saying, right, implying that the human ego really didn't exist in the past. In the time of the Egyptians, the self was really a self with others, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked mm-hmm. about that a little bit. And the fall, as, as, as the Bible says, that moment when uh, the human being realized it was naked, right, is in fact the time when the ego began to wake up. And the, the Hebrew people are a very special case in this that Steiner spends a lot of time on. We won't go into that right now. But but this nakedness then gradually happened all over the world as people wo- gradually woke up to a sense of self more and more and more, okay? And that's a that's an amazing story of Steiner's, right? So, we're, but we're still being, that's still being born, that sense of self, because what's that going to look like? Well, 
I mean, it, I think of it as that sharp sword that the Christ talks about. And, you know, that, you know, I, I, I come to bring a sword, which is kind of separates things, and you know, it splits things up at the same time that that it gives you a strength and a focus and an ability to uh, do something you couldn't do without it in that sense. Um, and that is in an evolutionary stage. And after that stage, after the ego is, is shall we say, fully born, um, then there'll be another organism that will incorporate itself into the human being in evolution. So yes, there is an ongoing evolution that's go that goes on for a long time and has been going on for a long time, far longer, frankly, than I think we could even say that the, the time that the universe has existed in a, in a certain way, right? Because that's only the physical part of it. Um, so I don't know where to go with that. I, I, I have some things I thought about uh, and I don't know if they're just nutsy. Go ahead. So un un unleash. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're ready for me. Yeah. I think I've worn you down. Now. Okay, so we do have to talk about this for a second. So one of the things I loved that I read when I uh, was reading Steiner in in its in a the second chapter, the nature of humanity in the book, an outline of occult science or an outline of esoteric science, one of his basic books. He talks about the human being. He says, "Look, we've got this physical body." And we look at the mineral realm and there it is. We're so thankful that the mineral kingdom exists because it's given us this heritage of having a physical body, right? Mm -hmm. And here it is. Well, that's interesting, this physical body. Uh, it's always dying. I'm losing all these cells all the time, hundreds of thousands of cells. What, a minute or an hour? I always forget that number. Or, or just substance. I'm just losing substance all the time. And I'm replacing that substance all the time, right? And so... Steiner says, well, that's not coming from the mineral kingdom. The mineral kingdom is not, is not uh, replacing your substance. The mineral king, if you were just a mineral body, you're just decay to, your, the, to the fundamental substances you're composed of. That's what you would do. But something else is present that is actively involved in replacing the substances that the mineral kingdom is dying away in you. Okay. And so he looks at the plant kingdom. He says, yes, look at the plant kingdom. We see there another set of forces. He calls them cosmic forces, cosmic forces that have penetrated matter, raised it to a higher organization, given it a whole different relationship to its environment. And it is constantly replacing these substances. And you have one of those bodies. He calls it an etheric body. And you can think the plant realm, shall we say, as a kingdom of nature for that heritage of having that uh, life body, just like you can your physical body and the mineral kingdom. But in our life body, which is far more advanced, is where our life of memory resides. It's the roots of where our thinking life arises out of. So many things are happening there that are far, you know, a, a big story, but let's just say that. So then we look, well, what happens next? Well, now I'm I'm not just alive, but I'm also sentient. I have these organs of perception in my physical body that are pouring this data into my being and I'm experiencing it inwardly. I have pleasure, I have pain, I have passions. Well, plants, people will argue it does, but there's no way to see that phenomenologically. You have to use a machine or make something up in your head about it, but I can clearly see it in the animal realm. Pain, pleasure, sentience, drives, passions, uh, all this stuff is happening in them and it's happening in us. So again, we look at the plant animal realm and there's a set of forces he calls astral forces or the astral world, or you could call them consciousness forces that are penetrating us from the cosmos. And now we have these three bodies 
in relation to the mineral kingdom and the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom. And then he says, but you stand upright, you speak, you have all these capacities that the animal realm doesn't have. And it's always an arguable thing to get to this next kingdom. But he's saying, and this is the human kingdom. And those are arising because of a reincarnating spiritual individuality that is using uh, earthly existence for the purposes of its evolution. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's a picture of the human being as Steiner uh says that has to be taken so he uses that 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 picture of the human being to to create an educational system he uses that picture of the human being to talk about how to create proper agricultural products he uses a uh, believe it or not so it's amazing how all these and he uses it also in really cool to talk about how the evolution of consciousness has occurred because at certain times we weren't really accessing uh, our consciousness through the brain we were you know in the in egyptian times we were accessing it through the liver right which was considered the the, the focus of uh, consciousness i don't know if you know that right? they, they threw the brain away they didn't think it had any use whatsoever you know things like that which is fascinating why how could that be right well these bodies were in a different relationship to each other which resulted in a completely different experience of the world than we have that you and i have it's a quite quite amazing story right okay so here we are. I'm still in the teleological aspect. Okay, so how can we see at least what we're doing right now? Now, I love this story, and that is the story of these. Okay, now that's still not enough yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, so here we go. So, okay, so let's look at child development. So here we are. So every seven years of your life, your etheric body, Steiner claims, replaces all the substances in your organism. So every seven years, you have a completely new organism in terms of the substances that are in it. So you're really like a river. You're like a river of stuff. You have a new pancreas about every 24 hours. All the cells are, are, are replaced. You have a liver about every seven days, all the you know, incredibly lively organ, and it changes all, you know, it just, you know, secretes all the old cells and substances and replaces them. So our bodies, we look at them and we think there are these permanent things. That's a magnificent illusion. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're a river. Every seven years I walk and go, Hey, James, I, wow, you're, there's not a single spot of your organism. That's the same as it was seven years ago. And yet I still recognize who you are. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so every seven years, Steiner says, there's this magnificent change in the human being. So you're born, for the first seven years of your life, uh, your etheric body, which is incredibly powerful then, uh, uh, replaces all the substances you got from your parents. So by the time you're seven, roughly, again, these are, you know, depending on the culture, changes this and stuff. Around seven, you've, you've, you've gotten rid of all the substances you got from your parents. And the last thing you get rid of is the hardest substance you got from your parents, which is your baby teeth. Hmm. When you start pushing your baby teeth out, Steiner says a clairvoyant can see the etheric body change and a part of it sort of differentiates off around the head region. And it causes, this is organismic, right? Or organic. It causes a, a, a qualitative leap in the, in the nature of the consciousness of the child. It sort of becomes, and this is my phrase, kind of a morally saturated pictorial consciousness. 
And, it, and you tell it stories and it just generates images and has these enormous feelings of good and evil when those stories are told that it just saturates its soul. And do you remember that time in our lives when that was like that? It, it, we never have that experience again, you know, like we had when stories were told. So in Waldorf education, you pull the glove inside out, you take all the knowledge you want to so, supposedly transfer to the child, but you, 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 you clothe it in these stories so that you preserve the nature of consciousness the child has at that time for as long as you can. But in our educational system, I was an educator all my life. We try to strip out that childlike consciousness and turn them into adults as fast as we possibly can mm -hmm. to, to, black, to straw man the argument, just to make the contrast, the argument. Right. And Steiner says, when you do that, when you call upon the intellectual faculties prematurely, you're robbing these etheric forces because they'll go there. They'll 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 generate intellectuality for you, but they'll rob the organism of its growth qualities. And it will it will actually incorporate uh, disease structures, lesions, let's call them in the in the etheric body that will result in illnesses when you're 40 or 50 or 60 years old. So this is interesting, right, that somebody to claim this. Right. So in Waldorf education, you have this whole different intention that's going on. So from seven and from seven to 14. You have another seven year period. The body changes out all its substances again. And son of a gun isn't there again a massive change in the organism mm -hmm. called puberty, called formal operations thinking, called this bone structure takes off like crazy and you grow like a weed, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you teach in a different way because now that, you know, the human being is, is becoming, is trying to become logical, <laughs> you know? And, and so you have to approach it in a very different way. And this is all, shall we say, informed by an anthroposophical understanding of the human being. So, uh, so Dale, well, just to add to that, I'm, I'm a bit concerned now because I just turned 28. So where am I? What's, okay. about, what's about to happen? Man, I wish I was as far along as you were when I was 28. You just made me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was 65. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then, okay, now it becomes more subtle, right? Because, but, and we'll go into this, but Steiner said these organismic changes, these these biological transformations of consciousness, we could call them, right? At seven and 14, in the way, way past, in the times of the Indian culture, thousands of years ago, these continued all the way up into their 50s. Mm -hmm. Every seven years, there would be a massive change in the consciousness of the human being, which doesn't occur anymore. Isn't that mm -hmm. fascinating? He says, we are kind of getting younger and younger and younger. Our, there's a part of our being that's going backwards in time. So that so so here we'll get to that. So now from 14 to 21, again, another seven year period. Again, uh, the, the substances of the bodies have been changed out. Now, this starts to change a little bit. Right. As we get older, our life forces aren't as powerful. So these time periods become looser. Right. In the early years, they're they're pretty much closer. But now our bodies are more tired or etheric forces are getting more exhausted. So maybe we don't change them all out in seven years kind of thing. Right. Kind of thing. Just so we we don't get too dogmatic about that. Mm -hmm. So then he says, really, what's happened is that when you were born, your physical body was unsheathed. He uses this phrase from your mother. When you were seven, your etheric body was unsheathed and became an independent part of your organism. When you're 14, your astral body, which has been sheathed all this time, is unsheathed, and, you and it becomes an independent part of your organism. So now at 21, the ego is born. This is all, Steiner says you're really not born on the earth until you're 21. Wow. 
And the, when that is done, the ego is unsheathed and it immediately, this is why I had to do this because we we're going to talk about teleology. We're still doing that. So the ego then immediately turns upon its astral body. And as uh, the morals, as, as our spiritual part, as our moral agency, it wants to transform the astral body into something eternal. Hmm. And it tries to ennoble the astral body. And it does that by reaching out in, in relation to other human beings. It wants to enter into relationship with other human beings. It wants to become independent now with its three independent bodies and go out into the world and live a life. And so from 21 to 28, Steiner described that period as the period of the sentient soul development. Okay, where sentience, you know, this reading the outer world and the soul living in that relationship and trying to learn, right, just learn what it can. How well has it been educated up to that time? How much will that allow it to, uh, to, to reach with a more powerful purchase, shall we say, into existence? That's a question, right? That's education in a nutshell, I think, right? So then from 28 to 35, the ego actually tries to enter into a relationship with the etheric body which is much, you shall we say, denser and harder to influence. Our astral body is sentience, it's awareness, right? We, we jump around in that world pretty easily and we probably get a lot done, who knows? It depends how <laughs> distracted we are, right? But the etheric body is, is different. It's where our temperament lies. It's where the deep characterological dispositions of our nature are, have sort of cemented themselves from whatever internalizations occurred when we were kids. But Steiner says, well, how would you influence that world? Oh, okay. So how would you, how would you transform that? He says, well, rhythm. He says, in, an, in a word, rhythm does that. So for instance, in a religious life of some kind, and he doesn't care what it is, as long as there's some kind of religious life in a rhythmic fashion, you will begin to affect the etheric body's development, the purifying it. He says, but Working on the etheric body is like an hour hand of a clock, whereas working on the astral body is like the minute hand of a mm -hmm. clock. Kind of, I love that image. And then, and that's from 28 to 35. He calls that the intellectual or mind soul uh, preparation time, uh, development time. And it's a part of our soul we're actually growing during that period from 28 to 35. So get busy, James. <laughs> and, then, and then from 35 to 42, the human being's ego actually tries to touch the physical body, but not the gross matter from the mineral kingdom, but the physical forces. And that's more subtle. Let's think of them as, I, I've always struggled with this, but they're probably like our nuclear forces in our atoms or something. You know what I mean? They're, they're not etheric forces. They're physical forces, but they're still spiritual in nature, but they're very, very high. The physical body in its spiritual nature is higher in a way than all of our bodies which is quite amazing to think about. And, you know, and that is only beginning, but it's interesting existentially that during that time from 35 to 42 is a, a time where you have midlife crises, where the, the idea of death begins to sort of impact unconsciousness in a new way, as we know from you know, Gail Sheehy's books or Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's books, et cetera, right? That there's this uh, developmental consciousness thing that happens and it's very interesting and it's neat that steiner years before any of that was ever discussed by anybody talks about this gesture of the ego to to touch the physical body and you know give it a shot <laughs> trying to transform it right that's a that's a big step way way in the future okay so these are teleological aspects of us mm -hmm. now ultimately these three things become the the purified completely purified 
astral body of passions and instincts will become something Steiner called the spirit self. The completely transformed etheric body will become something eternal called a, a part of our organism, just like the ego is becoming a part of our organism now, becomes something called life spirit or booty in the ancient theosophical terms. And then even eventually the physical body, when it's completely transformed, will be called uh, spirit human being or spirit man or atma, as it's called in the ancient thing. So all that, let me tell you now the story of our teleology. <laughs> What's that, right, that? Okay, that. and that is that is the three Easter's in the story of the mystery of Golgotha. Give us a picture of of all of this. The three Easter's, and these three Easter's are uh, when they saw Jesus on the walking on the water. Steiner says they were seeing uh, the clairvoyance that was burgeoning in the apostles. They were seeing the completed transformation of our astral body to the end of uh, this period of our human evolution. And it, it was a spirit self experience for them. So they were seeing the, the, this, this spirit self manifesting as though it was like walking on the water. Then on the on Mount Tabor, when they see Jesus clothed in this luminous white, this luminous white garb, they were seeing the completely transformed etheric body of the human being all the way to the end of evolution and had become life spirit, this new uh, uh, part of our nature that we'll have then. And then finally, uh, the mystery of Golgotha itself and the death on the cross and the resurrection then is a picture of even the physical body being transformed all the way to spirit human being. <laughs> Wow. There you, okay. And it all fits. Isn't it yeah. weird how yeah, it, no, fits? No, no, it fits? That's right. what just you're going, wait a sec. The Bible has got all this. And Steiner says, actually, the Bible needs to be taken absolutely literally, except you and I don't have the key for that literalism. Hmm. We use our materialistic sequential thinking and we read it like a damn newspaper. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it isn't. And it is. But it's a newspaper for an initiate. An initiate can read it like a newspaper. You and I have to try and imagine what's being said there, right? Mm. In the richest sense of the word. And that's really one of the great horrors of our time is, is the misuse of scriptures in general, probably not even just, but the Hebrew is very special because of the way it was written with a certain linearity that we really experience strongly in our time. So you, that's a long story. Yeah. I mean, but you just called, you called, so do you consider Steiner an initiate? Well, we would have to say that um, he never ever says that of himself, but he does talk about initiates and seems pretty, you know, pretty much one of them. But yes, yes. I mean, I, if I'm going to look at this whole picture uh, and now we're just kind of my own opinions, right? Yes. I see Steiner as uh, as the great initiate of the, of the modern age. I think he's the greatest initiate so far that we know. Of. Now I think there are many that just stayed out of the picture and oh. I think it was a great sacrifice at any time for an initiate to step into the public life. Yeah. Yeah. And really, you know, get hammered because he sure did. You know what I mean? They burned down the Gertianum, you know, I mean, uh, that was arson. So, wow. So you, and he was, do you, you think many people who uh, are, are of the, are of the initiates generally just, just stick to a personal evolution? Well, not so much personal, see, because then, then what's happening is they work in the spiritual sphere. So Steiner said, somebody asked him, uh, the man, when he, Steiner was asked to help with a, a new understanding of a Christian ritual that then became what is now the worldwide uh, uh, 
uh, Christian church, but they don't use the word church, Christian community. It's called the Christian Community Movement for Religious Renewal, which is now practiced all over the world. It uses the seven sacraments, but everything's been changed by Steiner. But he did not found it. He did not found it. But what the guy that was that that came along and was sort of the beginning of it all, his name was Friedrich Riddlemeyer. He said, well, what, what about initiates in our day, Dr. Steiner? What would that be like? He goes, well, you wouldn't know them. He says, they could be a doorman at a, at a, at a hotel. Mm-hmm. So everything they're doing is being done with great effect, I'm going to argue, with great efficaciousness, but in a spiritual way in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I, right out off the bat, I'm thinking of the angels in uh, Wings of Desire. <laughs> hmm. You ever see that movie? No, no, no. Oh, Vim Vendors, Vim Vendors. Give it a look. Everybody listening, watch that show. <laughs> <laughs> very, very beautiful. Uh, oh, Bruno Gans is in it. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great, great classic from the 70s, 60s, oh. maybe. I don't even know. Maybe 80s. I could be wrong. Yeah, well, I'll have to give it a look. But I mean, I would, I, yeah, I want to touch on something that you mentioned about, you know, so the idea of an initiate, you know, taking that risk of putting themselves in the public eye and then teaching and knowing they're going to get hammered, as you say, you know, it's a, it's a question that's come up on the podcast many, many times in, re- in relation to many thinkers who are forgotten. But Steiner is, of course, one of the big ones. And he hasn't been forgotten as much, but his memory is, could we say, contained. And, and, and why do you think perhaps at the time and now is the same reasons such people are, are sidelined, if not just immediately criticized. Yeah. I mean, first of all, let's, let's, let's say this. I mean, Steiner is the best kept secret of the 21st century. Nobody knows who Steiner is in, in relation to all he's produced and is active in the world. Right. Mm. He's completely on virtually no person in a Walter school knows that, that they're Steiner. It's pretty amazing. So let's just throw that out. It's, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, when he was alive, yes, probably more of a, an awareness. And, and like you say, so I just wanted to let you, that's my opinion on that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yes, well, if we're going to have a world such as we now consider to be the real world, which is a pretty completely materialistic world with some kind of compartmentalized religious life out there, for whatever it's worth. And I don't think very much, frankly, it scares the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that's the world. That's, that's our world. That's how our, 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 the formation of our conceptual life, our consciousness, everything runs on the world is this way. Well, and then along comes Steiner. <laughs> I mean, come on. He's gotta be nuts. He's gotta be a kook, right? <laughs> Nobody could be this way. I mean, read the anecdotes about the guy to blow your mind when he would, you know, people would be ill or something. And the way he would, you know, they, I, for example, okay, just, just to give you an idea. So it's, whenever the doctors, as time went on, whenever the doctors found Steiner was going to be in one darn place for more than a day or two, because he was roaming around Europe all the time giving lectures. Like, so he, let's say when he was giving the uh, agriculture course, oh my God, Steiner's going to be in the same place for two weeks. They would take all their problem cases as doctors and they would go there and Steiner would sit. They would all get in a room and Steiner would use it as a teaching moment. They'd bring, let's say, a child in. Steiner would look at the child for five minutes. The child would leave the room and Steiner would then give his uh, medical assessment of the difficulties of the child. And blow their minds. 
Okay. And then like one time that I, I loved some woman, uh, her child was having trouble and he said, I need to speak to the wife, to the mother. So the mother comes in and Steiner says, so could you tell me about an occurrence that happened in the fourth month of your pregnancy? And she tells him, he goes, ah, yes, I see now. Okay, thank you. And then she leaves, then he <laughs> continues the conversation. So there was this whole modality, you know, Steiner's phenomenological panorama that he was then being scientific about, right? The data that he was getting was coming from, and we haven't mentioned this before, all of our bodies have organs of perception. So obviously our physical body does. The organ of perception of our ego is thinking, but we have organs of perception in our etheric body that see the life world absolutely existentially directly. We have organs of perception in our astral body that see the world of the astral world phenomenologically directly. So once you've awakened all those organs and are able to receive data from those organs, then your thinking life can integrate it and understand your world. So think of Steiner's world with all those organs of perception active. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's an initiate. That right there in a nutshell is what an initiate is is a person who's simply awake on all those levels. So they look into a human being and they're seeing all this stuff going on. But most of the time, who knows how well their own education is in terms of integrating it into something understandable that can be communicated to other people. That was Steiner's raison d'etre. That's, that's the great deed of his, was that he could take spiritual concepts and bring them down with enough accuracy that people could think about them and not think he was nuts. Well, some anyway. <laughs> Did I, I think I digress there. Did I lose my way? No, no, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tough question. And really, I, th I think the answer is somewhat self-evident, especially in relation to uh, the material world, as you say, it's, it's just doesn't, it doesn't want to do anything. And, and it's developed a language which immediately uh, isn't critical in the sense that it's actually going to work with this stuff and try, try prove that it's wrong. It just gets, nah, it's a load of nonsense, right? Um you know, for instance, for instance, I recently had a discussion with someone about near-death experiences on the podcast, and they, they, uh, their, their work was they were they were going to enter into a debate with Steven Pinker about uh, near-death experiences, and he said, "Well, this is all connected to parapsychology and clairvoyance, so it's all nonsense. So there's no point doing the debate, right?" Exactly. So like immediately, they're like, they, they they've they've quashed any form of uh, discussion, even discussion about it, because it's already wrong because it isn't us which is bad science, it's bad philosophy, it's bad everything. But there you go. Uh, it's certainly comfortable for them to be able to do that. Yeah, well said, and thank you. I, we got back to the question, now I remember, yes. And <laughs> very much so, right? I mean, it's dismissed, right? And sadly enough, right, considering the way religions have acted <laughs> in the last you know, few millennia, it's just darn sad. You know, that In a way, we're glad we're out of that mess, except we don't seem to be. <laughs> you know, here we are, still killing everybody and every each other but but uh yeah you know so there's um that's a good one yeah and it is it's immediately dismissed so that's what's kind of cool about anthroposophy in a way is that some people come and they're, they they walk into a walter school well wait a sec what's going on here and then they ask the question right and then people can say things and they go oh well geez it sure looks like something i better study this even though it's on it would be nuts any other way it was approached, right? Agriculture. My God, this is amazing what you guys are getting here. How does this work? Well, it's because of blah, blah, blah. Oh, I think I'll look into that, right? So that's the other fascinating side of it all. And again, I think why an initiate had to bring the highest spiritual concepts 
completely down and penetrate the physical world with them. And, and all these healing uh, cultural uh, movements arise out of that that are starting to persuade. It's only been 100 years, James. That's nothing, right? Mm -hmm. That's nothing. In, in 400, 500 years, I think it's going to be pretty amazing. Or we won't be here. I'm afraid to say it's probably going to be one or the other. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll be here. I don't think you can actually just kill the whole thing off. But you, you could sure give the earth an amazing amount of suffering. And, you know, coming back from it will you know be a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, one sort of final question, I guess, I have for you, because because as, as you said at the start, you know, this idea, actually, that I really like of does anyone know Steiner? I mean, you know, we know of him, but then you go, yeah, but look at ev look at everything he did. You know, do you really know him? Uh, you know, maybe this is a really tough question. Where should someone begin with Steiner? Uh, you know, that's the side of it that's always hard. And, and, and part of it I've always wanted to say, there's two, two ways to go about it. One, way, one would be to read a secondary biography that, of Steiner mm. by someone else that gives you an overview and you can decide whether you're going to take or leave him, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or if you're already a, a teacher or a farmer or a beekeeper <laughs> or a doctor or a, a, a dancer from Eurythmy or an architect or a painter, you know, and I can go on, you could study one of his lecture cycles in those particular areas possibly and that and see if because there could be terminology difficulties too and, and see if uh you find your way to him that way or if you're just a generalist like i was you could start with or philosophy you know that's what i did right that's how i landed him was the philosophy of freedom the next book an outline of occult science or an outline of esoteric science really does give a nutshell of anthroposophy in a, in a wondrous profound intense way if you, did you ever get a chance to read that book? Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. Okay. And that, that's a ride. That's a ride. That's really quite something. And a lot of people, you know, that would, that would be one if you're, you know, really open and ready to read about those ideas. Cause then you get all the terminology created as you're, as he's developing the conceptual framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And where, and where can we, uh, where can we find your work? So I'm on uh, Dot com, And that's completely free. You don't have to sign up with all that email stuff. Drives me nuts. Mm -hmm. You know, you just dive right on in there and grab whatever you want. I also have it as a streaming service now, but I don't have it all on there. And it's very poorly organized. It's called uh, rudolfsteiner.podbean.com. Mm -hmm. And you just you need to put the collected works volume in there and Steiner's name, and then it'll give you the, the list of it. It's a podcast site. It's really not built for books. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's a, a little messy that way. And then while I was posting on the Podbean site, I had it just linked to Spotify and I had it linked to Apple iTunes and I had it linked to uh, uh, YouTube. So I do have a channel on YouTube that's sort of uh, after the fact. I don't pay a lot of attention to it, but people apparently like YouTube. And so they do that. And then it's a longer story, but I'll just say this, that the work was also uh, taken on by Rudolf Steiner uh, press.com in, in England. And they had now have a, a, a website called Rudolf Steiner press audio, which is my stuff that's on YouTube. And that's pretty comprehensive. I think that might have everything that's uh, the, the main site, uh, Rudolf Steiner audio.com has everything. And the other sites have not everything. They have just 
you know, there's little pieces missing because I'm a little erratic that way. Mm -hmm. wow. And there's other, there's other places. There's a guy, Karma Police Bureau <laughs> is his, is his name. And he did some really, this was about 10 years ago. He took some of the lectures he really liked and he did these meticulous montages that as the lectures being read, he uh, uses images you know, like he'll do the Egyptian myths and mysteries. And when it's talking about a certain thing, he finds a, an Egyptian image that fits what's being talked about. And they're meticulous. It's a, and they're high res and everything. You know, I don't know how, how long a person would ever want to stare at one of those, but they're, they're pretty amazing. He's had those for a long time. And there's probably other things here and there, you know, around. I, I'm not, I don't even know how many downloads a year, you know, it is now. It's very gratifying. And I just love getting letters from people and, and, and gabbing, as you know, as you could see, <laughs> about Steiner's work, right? We have any, I haven't even got halfway through the notes I got ready for you, but <laughs> well, if you need to leave, I understand. No, no, no it's, not a, it's not a question of needing to leave. It's about, you know, keeping it, keeping it within a time. So, you know, gotcha. you, you know um, but, but I was going to say, you know, I would love, to chat again, though I, you know, maybe maybe that's a risk me saying that because, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you you'd happily happily talk about started forever. And I mean, this is the thing. I mean, some you know, I do these episodes and I think, man, I just wanna I just wanna spend all my time with Steiner. I mean, I've already got an episode planned for someone else for Steiner's Christology. You know, his his uh, his work on the Gospels, which is absolutely fascinating, and Christianity is a mystical fact, and you know, the, the, these beautiful 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 books. So I, you know, if you're up for it, I'm more than happy to uh, chat about Steiner. You know, once again, that'd be great. Well, thank you so much. Really, I, it's such a pleasure and honor. And I, I, I really have listened to a, a episode and a half of on your site and how, how wonderful what you're doing. And, and now to know you're 28, well, there's, there's great times to come. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. So, uh, yeah, Dale, Dale Brunswell, thank you.